This podcast is presented by Solving Kids Cancer, dedicated to improving survival through novel clinical studies. To learn more about funding opportunities, visit our website at solvingkidscancer.org and click Apply for Grant. This week in Pediatric Oncology, the podcast about new advances for childhood cancer. Hi, everybody. Welcome to episode number 21, recorded November 17, 2011. I'm your host, Tim Kripe, along with my co-host, Maureen O'Brien. Welcome back, Maureen. It's been a while. Thanks for having me, Tim. <laughs> and we also have the honor of having Raj Nagarajan with us. Welcome back, Raj. I'm glad to be here. Uh, today, we have a special guest with us, a legend, really, here at Cincinnati Children's Hospital Medical Center, Dr. B. Lampkin. And uh, Maureen will just introduce her with a few words, but welcome, B. Thank you. I'm glad to be here. Thanks for being here. So we're very excited to do this podcast today with a chance to look back at the illustrious career of Dr. Lampkin here at Cincinnati Children's um, and the contributions to the field of childhood cancer, childhood leukemia, and hematologic disorders, and hopefully talk a little bit about her career, what we've learned, and how we can go forward. Dr. Lampkin actually trained in Alabama and came here to Cincinnati Children's um, in the mid-1960s and has been here ever since then in um, many important roles in this hospital and really developing the uh, Department of PTM here and nationally. So thanks for coming to speak to us and tell us uh, about a lot of different things. Well, thank you, Maureen. I'm happy to be here. I don't know that I'm a legend by any means. <laughs> oh, yes, you are. You can't deny it. <laughs> but I certainly have been in the field for a long time, actually. I start, when I started in the field, the term oncology wasn't being used. Really? It was just hematology. But I, at, I had my actual hematology training at L.A. Children's Hospital uh, for two years, and yes, we did see uh, cancer patients, particularly leukemia was part of hematology at that time. Uh, but we also saw Wilms tumor. We saw all the tumors that you now see, but it wasn't called oncology. We didn't call uh, our division uh, hematology oncology until about 1974. Uh, so that I, it, everything started with the term hematology. Was it the same in the adult world back then? We're not really separated yet. Uh, we are here in a couple institutions, but certainly not from a boarding standpoint. Or... Well, I don't think you should be separated. Right. And I'll tell you why. Because of the fact there's no doubt that uh, the patient that presents with pancytopenia might not have leukemia and might have a hematologic disorder. And, and similarly, a patient that uh, has a, a actual uh, abdominal mass may not have uh, actually a, a cancer, may have a, a hemangioma or something else. So really, I think you, that in, at least particularly in pediatric hematology, oncology, I think they need to be uh, training in both. Uh, it doesn't say that you shouldn't uh, separate down the line, particularly regarding your, your actual uh, keeping up with the field uh, and uh, with the the fact that uh, there are more and more genetic abnormalities that you have to 
there's, there's much more knowledge today than uh, when we first started uh, in hematology. Well, and some of that's thanks to your work. Um, let's go get back to you. How did you um, end up in Cincinnati? You grew up in Alabama, and then you said you went out to California. Well, actually, I, I interned in Richmond, Virginia, and then uh, went to L.A. You were going uh, coast LA, to coast. <laughs> uh, and then I came back here. I came back here because Dr. Alvin Mawa uh, was here, and uh, he was working in cell kinetics of leukemia, and I got an interest in that. And so that actually Dr. Mawa was the one who started me off in my um, research career. And, and so that I certainly... Uh, the early cell kinetics of leukemic cells, uh, and 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 that which I'm pretty well known in uh, about is uh, the the effect of drugs on the cell cycle. Was there something uh, that got um, got you interested in hematology in the first place? I uh, yes, it, again, it was Dr. Mauer when I was here at uh, Children's Hospital, and he was just a wonderful teacher and. He made all residents look at the blood smear. Aha. Uh-huh. <laughs> uh, and and he, he was very insistent on uh, good histories and physicals. And so that he's the one that really is the reason I went into. So that was when you were a pediatric resident here. That was when I was a pediatric resident train. before yeah. I went off to L.A. Children's. Because we were commenting that the, your first article on your CV list is about megaloblastic anemia. Um, so we were intrigued as to how you got into there okay. and then shifted to leukemia. Well, I love my galloblastic anemia still. <laughs> uh, <laughs> we know that. <laughs> and, and, and certainly I, it, I got interested in that because of the fact that when I first went to L.A. Children's, I happened to get have two uh, siblings with megaloblastic um, anemia. And, and today... Uh, if I had those two siblings, I might think that they truly had transcobalamin deficiency. Uh, we uh, found that, that in those two siblings that they responded to high doses of, of uh, folic acid and B12 together. But uh, I don't know. I don't have follow-up of, of that. That's what? Over, A few years ago. Uh, yeah, I won't say how many, but over <laughs> 40 years ago. <laughs> That's the reason why I became very interested in megaloblastic anemia. But I was interested in leukemia, too, because there were a lot of patients out at L.A. Children's that um, I had leukemia, and we were at the beginning of evaluation of vincristine uh, to, for its um, uh, chemotherapeutic effect. And, and uh, I, at the time that I was started out at L.A. Children's, I, b- before I actually being with uh, Dr. Denman Hammond, who was the head of the Children's Cancer Study Group at that time, uh, before I really, uh, that period of time, uh, 6-mecaptopurine was known to be effective. Of course, methotrexate was known to be effective because of the fact that uh, aminopterin had been the first drug in 19... 19- uh, 48 that had been introduced by, forget his name now. Uh, Sidney Farber. Sidney Farber, right. <laughs> and, and so uh, we did know about those uh, drugs, uh, but we didn't know about all the other drugs that we now use. Um, and it, Were you using steroids at that time? We were yeah. using steroids, uh, but we were 
determining what dose to use and and, um, and still a how, question yeah and, and how to, and yes and 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 how to give it uh, so that uh, uh, yes I've grown up with uh, all of the standard uh, chemotherapeutic drugs really the best way to use them what? and certainly our uh, studies that we did uh, on the cell cycle uh, certainly showed where they they had the best effect. Uh, on the cell cycle. Can you give us a sense of what that time was like? One, to be at the beginning, sort of when some treatments were maybe being effective, but really when most most patients weren't being helped? Well, it was uh, certainly uh, more depressing than it is now, uh, and certainly uh, it's gratifying to see what has happened. Uh, we, unfortunately, at that time, uh, I, we weren't, were not totally honest with the kids, uh, we were with the parents, uh, that uh, we would tell the parents that, that your child has uh, leukemia and explain leukemia, etc. Uh, but I, we also told the parents, because at, that, at the very early part, uh, uh, it, it was sort of like AIDS. You didn't want to go and uh, have other uh, family members and, and uh, the, the public to know your child had leukemia because they were a bit shunned until we started to having better uh, effects uh, of the, the chemotherapeutic agents. And so that we would tell them, uh, tell your family, use your own judgment, but uh, use the term anemia and that your child has to come back to the hospital to get blood every so often. And then do you remember your first patient that was cured? Uh, yes, I do. <laughs> What was that like? Oh, that was fantastic. And this, this of course, um, uh, goes back uh, to the uh, middle to late 1960s. Certainly, um, we now, in our long-term survivors clinic, uh, the oldest patients that are in there are patients uh, of mine, really. And, and so um, it's, it's gratifying uh, to see uh, uh, to know that some in the 50s and, and uh, 40s and so forth. Sure. Mm -hmm. Now, what was it like, I'm going to steal Maureen's question, uh, <laughs> to be a, a woman in, in medicine at that time? There were not many of us, <laughs> but I actually, I never had any real problem uh, except that I didn't get the financial aid uh, that the men got, uh, meaning uh, that, uh, for example, when I, I, maybe I shouldn't tell this. <laughs> <laughs> we could do it. Yeah. <laughs> I, when I took over as a division head in 1973, I obviously saw uh, what we all made. And um, Tom Kisker, and I dearly love Tom Kisker. Uh, it wasn't his fault, but he was making more money than I was making. And I was his senior uh, and helped teach him. That changed uh, when, I was, when I was actually... Thank you. For those of us that have come later, thank you. Uh, when I was a director of the division, uh, you got uh, paid for what you did and not uh, for whether you were male or female. So I, I think that's been a big problem in medicine over the years, and I'm not sure that it's completely solved yet in all sectors. But, but it may uh, not be, yeah. and it should be. Because, uh, you know, I mean, 
What about in terms of opportunities of, for, for professional development or growth? At one point, I was the only person that was head of a, a major division here at Children's Hospital Medical Center that was female. So, I, yes, and actually... <laughs> Um, I used to meet with the heads of the division, and I was the only woman in there, and here all around the table were all these men. And I guess I could have uh, complained a little bit, but I didn't. <laughs> also, I'm sure it took a special person to not just get through medical school, but to make, make it successful at that time. And if, if you were t- as tough then as you are now, I'm sure that played a big part of it. <laughs> Well, I'm, I don't know I'm so tough, but... <laughs> oh, Pete, you're pretty tough. Um, what about the fact that you had polio? Can you tell us about that? When, when How old were you when that I happened? was seven years old. Seven. And I was actually paralyzed from my neck down, but I, I actually uh, got most of my left leg, or a lot of my left leg muscle back, uh, and my arms back except a little bit in my right hand. I and then I I walked on crutches. Uh, were you in an iron lung for some of that time? No, I I actually fortunately was not in an iron lung. I lived in Tuscaloosa, Alabama, that didn't have any facility for polio at that time, and so I I, I went to Birmingham uh, and in the Crippled Children's Hospital they called it. Oh, I hated that place. <laughs> and anyway, I and tell you a funny thing, and that is, uh, I was uh, I actually I hadn't ever been away from home before. I guess I was upsetting the fact I was in this long ward of people, and I was crying. Uh, and so and they would whip me out and take me into a dark room, all by myself. And so. Uh, they did that on October 31st, Halloween, and then uh, my head was at the uh, end of the the window, and some kids jumped up in white sheets and scared Dickens out of me. <laughs> <laughs> and so soon thereafter, I, my father came and got me and took me home. How long were you there? I was there about... Three months, I guess, wow. something like that. I have to ask you, since we're on the topic of polio and your crutches, mm-hmm. I wasn't fortunate enough to be a trainee of yours in the early days uh, as a mm-hmm. resident or a fellow. I came here as faculty, but but there's a there's legend. You're you're a legend around here for keeping people in line with those crutches. <laughs> <laughs> Is there truth to that? No. <laughs> I, I never hit anybody. No, that's not what I'm implying. <laughs> so, but, but I'll tell you one thing. I could go up and down the steps about as fast as they could and and, uh, and would not wait on the elevator if it was taking a long time. But then old post-polio hit me mm. after I uh, had polio for about uh, 50 years. And that's really? it. Mm-hmm. And, and how did that manifest itself? And it manifested itself by my left leg getting weaker and weaker and weaker, and my arms getting a little weak. So then you had to be in a chair all the time after so that? So then I had to be in a chair.
But that's no big deal. I mean, I've learned how to move this chair pretty good. Yeah, we all, we all clear out of the way for sure. <laughs> Did you think about going into medicine really early on following that experience, or was I, there something else that... Yeah, I thought about going into medicine uh, when I was in, in high school. I never planned to go anywhere else, uh, do anything else. Uh, my father, uh, grandfather on my mother's side was a, a family physician, and so I kind of... I had him as an idol, but I had also uh, at Warm Springs, Georgia, my orthopedic surgeon I had as an idol. Now, I'll tell you something funny. One funny at the time. Uh, when I was getting ready, I, I was in pre-med, and I was in Warm Springs, Georgia, and one of the doctors there said, you shouldn't go to medical school. You should be a medical secretary. <laughs> and so I, I left, Oops. and and I I didn't apply but to one medical school because I was afraid they wouldn't take me. And I don't know what I would have done if they hadn't taken me. But I, I applied to the Medical College of Alabama, which is now the University of Alabama in Birmingham, and they took me. And I didn't go back to Warm Springs until I was already an MD. <laughs> did you find that person? And I did. I oh, found that person. <laughs> well, I'm glad they accepted you. Yes, very <laughs> So when you started off thinking about how uh, to make uh, better treatments for children with leukemia and studying the cell kinesis, what, what sort of were your thoughts or your goals or ideas? Well, the goal was uh, to try a way of getting them into remission at that time, particularly acute myeloblastic leukemia. We were not uh, really uh, able to, to get them into remission. Uh, we could, the occasional patient, with just uh, prednisone of increasing, but that was not common. Cytosine and rabbicide was an investigational drug. As far as investigational drugs... Elisparginase, uh, I've done them all, frankly, uh, as far as the effect on the cell cycle. But we found that cytosine or remdesicide was an excellent drug for AML. And what we found was that we were able to uh, synchronize cells in the S phase. And once we found they were synchronized in the S phase, we then gave larger dose of, Elispar of uh, cytosine or remdesicide until... And we found that you had to get the marrow very, very hypocellular. And so that we continued until we did that. And then we, we found that we were able to get, uh, actually in a small number of patients, uh, as far as children, uh, and I think six adults and I think 18 or so children, we were able to get 81% of those into remission with that drug singly. Now that did mean that you obtained a bone marrow sample uh, before you gave cytosine or remicide, uh, you then, and you uh, determined the numbers of cells in DNA synthesis, and then you actually uh, obtained another marrow to show that you inhibited DNA synthesis, and then you obtained one or two more marrows determined uh, that they were in the S phase. And then when we found the time period of recovery was when we would then hit them with large doses. So you did this in each patient? So we did, did small each dose. So this is personalized medicine. Yeah. This is personalized medicine. A small dose and then multiple yes. bone yes. marrows, and yeah. then the timing was right. Yes, right. Yes, right. Oh, in the individualization cool. of the 
treatment. Talk about a headache. It's more individualized than we do now. That's right. Oh, it is more individualized than you do now. But it also requires obtaining samples of marrow. So how often were you doing those bone marrows? Those kids would get at least four or five marrows within a period of of, um, probably 48 hours. 48 hours. Mm -hmm. Did you have anesthesia? Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) This is before you used anesthesia. Just vocal. Mm-hmm. Um, wow, that, that's impressive. Uh, and, that, and the fact is, uh, this is uh, we have a lot to uh, thank the kids that allowed this to be done, the parents that allowed this to be done. But I think it was helpful to, to uh, as far as understanding uh, that uh, cytosine and rabbit said it is, a, a, is cycle-dependent. Now, we don't do that now. Um, do we? Why not? Um, how, do, how do we get away without doing well, that? Well, prom- well now is you use more drugs at one time. Uh, and and so that they, we didn't have all those one drugs at one time. Right. Uh, and so that uh, now you don't do that. I'm not sure that if you didn't give them cytosine or MSAD, wait for synchronization, then start your chemotherapy. If you wouldn't even get better results now. But uh, that... Uh, it's, it's hard. Just gave Maureen her you next just, research you project. You just hope that the atopicide <laughs> and the anthracycline is picking off the others. Yeah, but, yeah. you know, it's interesting because these things continue to come up in terms of things that we're mm-hmm. working on now, cell mm-hmm. cycle inhibitors and using mm-hmm. them in the right sequence and timing yeah. with cytarabine or gencitidine. Yeah, yeah, yeah. 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 A, um, so it's all very... actually hit it at the right time and potentiate mm-hmm. the efficacy. That's exactly yeah. right. And that's, that's, so, that's the way I think it, it could be maybe improved. Now, when you were trying these things in patients, what kinds of approvals or regulations did you have to go through? You know what it takes nowadays. Well, what uh, we did. What did you have to do that? We explained to the, we got uh, signed permission at that time, too. From the families? From the families. What about um, IRB? No such thing, right? Um, oh, no. Well, now, uh, when I first, I would say in the 60s, in the late 60s is when the IRB started. But it's gotten, as I can tell you, during the period of time I was director of the division, it got more and more oversight uh, than they, they did in the earlier days. Um, but you still couldn't just sort of take something off the shelf in the lab and carry No, it you could not do that. No way. <laughs> and, and you did, uh, we did get permission uh, to do these uh, studies from the family. The actual AML, I think, um, you know, cytosine or amicide is still probably the best drug uh, or a derivative of uh, cytosine or amicide for AML. Finding the best way to use it is a good thing to do. Well, it's interesting because a lot of times you hear criticism that the FDA hasn't approved any drugs in the last 40 years for pediatric cancer or um, maybe one, or that there haven't been new drugs come along and everything we're using is, you know, 40-year-old treatment, but in fact, it works. That's why mm-hmm. we're still using it, right? Mm-hmm. So, to well, some degree, I think from your experience, so much to be said for learning how to use them better. And we're still, you know, the most recent mm-hmm. high-risk ALL study that just closed. The two questions were, "What's the best way to give methotrexate?" and the other one was dexamethasone or prednisone in induction. So we keep coming around to yeah, right. the same questions. <laughs> right. So, but using them, you know, and probably there's still more to learn about how to maximize those. Yeah, I think methotrexate uh, is, is a wonderful drug, uh, you know, for a- ALL. 
you'll have to realize I came up with um, sequential therapy. You know what that is? That means that you, for example, you got the patient in, talking about ALL now, you got the patient into remission, and then you kept on with that same drug until you got a relapse. And then you gave another drug, and you kept on, uh, you know, until you got relapse. Uh, and then as time went on, it would be get them into remission, and with prednisone and finally vincristine. And then the best way to maintain them was not known, so he went sequentially after getting them into remission. You use methotrexate 6-MP and then methotrexate and so forth. But some of the studies, uh, we found that with methotrexate, wouldn't have as much toxicity if you gave a higher dose of methotrexate every two weeks than if you, you gave it daily. Uh, on the other hand, we also found out that if you gave more than uh, a certain dose, I wouldn't want to mention the dose because I can't remember it for sure, but if you gave up to that dose, watch out, you're going to have uh, leukoencephalopathy. Mm-hmm. So you, you you had to be below that dose, but you had to be above a certain dose. And were these discoveries basically made by trial and error? Mostly trial and error. Mm-hmm. Now, back at that time, did you have collaborations with other um, oncologists? Well, no, fortunately, uh, the actual Children's Cancer Study Group, uh, we didn't become members of that until I took over as the director of the division. <laughs> what year was that? And that I took over the director of the division in 1973, but we didn't become members until, I think, 1976. Now, uh, you know, you mentioned, you know, Dr. Maurer and mm-hmm. uh, um, a couple of other physicians. Alvin Maurer. Mm-hmm. Alvin Maurer. Um, I mean, what other people were most influential in your career? I would say uh, Dr. Alvin Maurer, Dr. William Schubert. Uh, was he chair of pediatrics when you arrived here? No. Dr. No. Edward Pratt. I would add it, Dr. Edward Pratt. As a matter of fact, uh, in 1973, when I took over the division, Dr. Mauer had gone, had just left to go to St. Jude's, or had said he was going to St. Jude's. Tom Kisker had just said he was going to the University of Iowa. I had a fellowship in in Australia with uh, Dr. Metcalf, but I didn't, Dr. Pratt said, if you stay here, you can be the division head. Uh, if you leave, uh, we don't know whether we'll have a position or not. And so... Uh, I gave up my fellowship and stayed here, and I was on call. I was the only pediatric hematologist, oncologist in Cincinnati area. And so I was on call every night and uh, every day. And fortunately, Dr. Uh, Ralph Greppo, who had done one year with us, with Dr. Mauer, Dr. Kisker, and me, he decided to stay a second year. And I, I was able to get back Dr. K.Y. Wong uh, from uh, Hong Kong. Uh, he'd been a fellow here uh, in, in about May of uh, 1974. And we grew from that. Wow, I can't imagine being the only person in the city on call. Wow. That's a scary it was, it was, it was the most. It was the most exhausting year I've ever had. I'll bet. And, but but we survived, and 
And uh, actually, we we did, did pretty good. Uh, we started the bone marrow transplant unit wow. in, in 1981. I sent uh, Dr. Richard Harris, uh, I called up Dr. Donnell Thomas out in Seattle. Uh, I'd met him out there because I was on the research committee of NIH. So I, I knew him, so I called him, uh, and he uh, accepted Richard as a fellow there for three months uh, and, and came back and set up the transplant unit here. Um, and Dr. Harris is still here He's working. Still and here. Dr. Gruppo is still here working. And, That's right. Uh, your legacy continues. So that, but uh, to put things in perspective for our listeners, at that time you were the only pediatric hematologist oncologist in the city, and, I, and I'm sure the population has grown some. But we now have—I know we have about 75 faculty total in in Hemonc and BMT, but that also includes PhDs and uh, you know, basic scientists. But there's probably 40 or so clinicians of one sort or another, mm -hmm. either bone marrow transplanters, hematologists, mm -hmm. oncologists. So well, it, it takes 40, it takes 40 of, us of us to do the work that you did. Yeah, but there are many more patients now. I, actually, one of the things that, that I did do when I took over was that uh, I did uh, actually go to northern Kentucky, went to Brown County, went to um, Claremont County, gave talks to have the kids not been sent to St. Jude's, but to come here. And, and we got them. Uh, and so that uh, I, it, it took a little bit of, of that type of thing. Sure, too. some PR. Yeah. <laughs> what are some of the things in, in, your, in your more latter stages of your career? As I know you've stayed very active in teaching mm -hmm. our fellows. You still continue to do a weekly yeah, I like uh, my kids. Rounds. You like your kids. <laughs> um, <laughs> and, I, a lot of people have been trained by you over the microscope. There's no doubt about that. Mm -hmm. uh, that's a terrific, terrific resource. But you've also been quite active in the community. Can you yes. tell us about that? Well, I, I actually, when I retired uh, in 1991, I didn't have all that much to do, and I was became more active in my church, the Pleasant Ridge Presbyterian Church. And uh, I was put on the outreach and uh, mission committee, uh, and we uh, needed to have something to sink our teeth in. And so I noticed around Children's Hospital on Burnett Avenue, and that's unfortunately still happening, is it is substance abuse dealing. And so that uh, I decided, we decided in the mission committee that we should do something to to uh, try and prevent this. And if you don't work with children uh, and the family, uh, if you just work with the addicts, you're not going to do it. And so that we uh, set up what we call Glad House. Glad means giving life a dream. Took us uh, actually five years to get going uh, because of the fact that we we planned our program for the Glad House before we started. We had a stellar uh, group of people working uh, for the program. We had a psychiatrist from here, uh, Dr. Karen and Christian. Uh, we had uh, actually um, a social service workers from here. We had social service workers from schools. Uh, we had uh, school teachers. Uh, we had uh, we went to the uh, we did a, quite a bit of uh, investigation. Uh, uh, went to First Step Home, which is the 
program here in the city that does admit children to their uh, program when the mothers are in treatment, but they don't do anything for the children. So we went uh, to there and did a, uh, we asked questions to find out what really was needed. So anyway, we started uh, Glad House in 1998. Originally, it was a, a residential program for two years, but that was too demanding and too expensive. Uh, and so that we now have what we call CHAMPS, which is an initial very intensive program that's a pattern after you get them in remission first as far as the kids, and these are 5 to 12 years of age kids, and this is like a, a treatment of leukemia. Get them in remission first, and then you need to maintain them. You can't stop. So we have Glad Hands Club that uh, continues after we have uh, actually... Uh, tr uh, giving them treatment and prevention, uh, prevention for substance abuse and treatment because they've all developed inappropriate behavior patterns. Uh, and so that we tutor them and we, we feed them and we uh, actually have a strength and families program where the mothers do participate with them. We then uh, uh, actually in the CHAMPS program take them back home Oh, wherever they are, stay in, first step home, etc. And then I, uh, when they admit their individual service plan, uh, they, we then uh, actually have them coming back to Glad Hands Club uh, once a week until they're 18 years of age. We started off with eight kids at a time. Uh, now we have, uh, in the CHAMPS program, we now have 25 kids at a time in the CHAMPS program. But of those earlier ones, the earlier years, we started the program in 1998. We now have had 24 to graduate from high school. Wow. And 18 are going, no, 16 are going to college. No, 18 are going to college. That's it. That's yeah. That is mm -hmm. great. How do you identify the kids and the families to get in to be in the program? That's a good the need is you know yeah. so great. It's, it's greater than what we can yeah. say. Uh, we identify them principally through first step home and other treatment programs. And at the beginning, it was strictly first step home, but now uh, because of the fact there are actual mothers out there that have had treatments either first step home or somewhere else. And yet the children have not, and they've identified the children, you know, not doing too well. And so we have a lot of self-referrals now of mothers that have is this all treated. This is all paid for by philanthropy? I, 60% is. And it's, that's what I spend most of my time, is trying to, to raise money uh, for the program. And, and hopefully we, we uh, will be able to expand more and more. I'd like to see more glad houses in Cincinnati. I'd like to see it across the country. Our program is unique in Cincinnati for this targeted age range uh, and uh, is unique in Ohio and is unique in the United States. I know it's unique in the United States because we just went to a, we did give a, our abstract was uh, accepted and so we gave a, a paper at a national conference and, and it is unique in the United States. If someone wants to find out more about it or contact you or the other organizers about it, where, where uh, can they go? We do have a website. Uh, it's just simply Glad House uh, and it's written together there. 
G-L-A-D-H-O-U-S-E together, dot org. Great. And uh, GLAD stands for Giving Life a Dream, and we're giving these kids a life. That sure sounds like it. That's that's an awesome program, and it's a great example of you as a pediatrician and, and a healthcare provider, not just healing the patients here at Cincinnati Children's, but the community at large. And more of us, I think, could could do that sort of thing. It's very inspiring. I think we've spent enough time oh, of your time. Uh, all right, thank you. <laughs> we could do this all day. We could do this all day, but all good things must come to an end. So I will um, let, oh, why don't we wrap it up and thank you for being here. It's thank been terrific. You. Yes, thank you, Maureen, for being here. Thanks. Thanks, Raj. If anyone sends us an email or has questions about it, I'll, I'll let you know. That's I'm fine. hoping that you'd be mm-hmm. able be to happy. answer them. Be happy to. Great. So if you are a listener and have a question, even if you're listening to this, a long time from now, we can pass it on to B. Uh, write us at TWIPO, that's T-W-I-P-O, at solvingkidscancer.org, or post the query on iTunes. You can follow us on Twitter at TWIPO Podcast, and you can sign up for automatic notification when we post new episodes by registering using the RSS feed link on the Solving Kids Cancer website. As always, thanks to Donna Lewinsky, our executive producer, Pat Buckley, our creativity consultant, and Scott Kennedy and John London, who are the founding co-directors of Solving Kids Cancer, who sponsor this podcast. Uh, Solving Kids Cancer is a nonprofit charity dedicated to improving survival through creating novel treatment options for children. Remember, the more we learn, communicate, share ideas, and work together, the faster we'll reach the day when all childhood cancer is preventable or curable. As always, keep up the fight, and thanks for listening to This Week in Pediatric Oncology.